This podcast is presented to you by Pastor Derek Armstrong and Word of Grace Community Church. For more information, please visit wogcc.com. Glad you're here at church today. We're going to continue in our Roman series. Before we get into the Word, just a few quick things. Um, if you've been using our Version online, uh, following along with the notes and all that stuff, which we do encourage you to use, that's been down, um, something problem with their end of the website, and so it's supposed to be fixed by next week. So if you've been like, where's the U version? You know, I don't want you to think that we don't have it anymore, um, but we will be, uh, should be good to go next week. So if you're checking your phone or your iPad going, where's it at? Uh, they're having some technical issues, and hopefully all that will be fixed uh, next week. Um, also, uh, this week in Romans, um, as I was studying and praying, I really came across a version of the Bible that really outlined Romans chapter 2 better than the one that I normally use that I think just makes some things a little bit plainer and easier to understand. So I don't want you guys to be like, oh, this isn't the normal version of the Bible that pastor uses. Normally I do preach out of the New King James, which is the one that I normally prefer. But as I was studying Romans chapter 2, I saw that uh, the New Living Translation really uh, just made some sense of some things that will just help us kind of navigate through this chapter of Romans. And last night, made it through the whole thing. So we made it all the way through Romans chapter 2, so we'll see, we'll see how we fare today, see if we do the same thing. Um, it took us three weeks to get through the first chapter of Romans and a lot of setup, so if you've missed any of those, I would encourage you to go online and go listen to those previous messages. I gave a lot of the setup for the book of Romans that's going to help us to understand some of the why behind why things were written, who wrote it, and the time and the date and the setting and things like that, as well as bringing out great spiritual truths that Paul was communicating to the church in Rome, which he had never visited, and also things that God is still communicating to his church, you and I, today. So with that being said, let's go to the book of Romans, chapter 2. And if you're taking notes, and you can use your uh, bulletin, we have a good size space on the inside of your bulletin to, uh, to take notes there. Um, if you're writing notes today, the title of my message is Good Deeds, Romans chapter 2. Bible says this in the New Living Translation, You may think you can condemn such people, but you're just as bad, you have no excuse. When you say they're wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself. For you who judge others do the very same things. And we know that God and His justice will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the exact same things? Don't you see how wonderfully kind tolerant and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that this is his kindness and it's intended for you to turn away from your sin? Now here's Paul and he's writing to the church in Rome and he's saying, listen guys, you have just gone through accusing people of doing all kinds of wicked deeds and as Paul clearly explains and clearly writes out in chapter 1 verse 18 through 32 Paul gives this laundry list of things all the way from the vilest uh, of, of, of sexual immorality all the way down to being disobedient to parents being proud being bolsters all these things he kind of lumps all of these sins together and he's saying listen th this stuff is really bad these people are haters of God they're bolsters they're proud and they're exchanging the truth of God for a lie. And then he goes on and continues in his letter in chapter 2, and he says, but you who are accusing these people of doing this stuff, you're doing the exact same thing. 
Whoa, 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 Paul. I don't think so. Remember, we're the church in Rome. We're the church in Rome. Remember, remember, Paul knows how great these guys in Rome are because he said in chapter 1 and verse 8, hey, your faith has reached my ears because I've heard about all the good deeds and all the good stuff that's going on. I've heard about all the fruit of the gospel that you're producing. I've heard about all these wonderful things that are going on. And then he turns just a few paragraphs later and he says, and all the stuff you're accusing other people, people of, you're actually doing the same thing. See, Paul was trying to explain something to the church in Rome, and it's the same thing God wants us to get today. That in Romans 1 and verse 17, he says that the just shall live by faith. You and I are justified by faith, not our works. Amen? That's what Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 says. It says it's by grace that we've been saved through faith. It's not of works. And it's not something you and I can boast about. Not something that we can claim right to. It's something that you and I have received by faith. It's His grace. And so when we understand justification by faith, which is what Paul was trying to get these guys to understand, what that comes from is from a heart that is humbled, not a heart that is prideful. Because a heart that's prideful is very self-reliant, very dependent upon self. And you can't earn righteousness. You can't deserve righteousness through your good works. Righteousness comes, justification comes through faith alone. And Paul was trying to get them to understand this. And so what he was trying to get them to get is that, you see, righteousness actually produces humility, not pride. Righteousness or right standing with God not only is received through humility, but it produces humility. It's something that we understand the message of the gospel, that it's not something we earned, not something we felt entitled to. Think about this for a minute. Every week, you may get paid weekly, monthly, bi-weekly, whatever the case may be. You have put in all of your time, all of your effort, and then your employer gives you this piece of paper with some numbers on it. You look at that piece of paper, and you either feel one of two things. You either feel grateful for it, or you feel entitled to it. You look at it, and you go, this is not near enough. When you look at your paycheck, you go, this is not near enough. And you feel entitled to it. Why? Because you worked for it. When you work for something, whatever you receive as a reward for your work, you feel entitled to that because I gave my time, I gave my effort, I gave my energy for this. I deserve this. I'm entitled to this and maybe more. That's not the way righteousness works. You can't do enough good deeds and go to God and cash it in and say, God, I want to exchange this for righteousness. He said, it doesn't work that way. Because he says, your righteousness is like what? Filthy rags. It's what the Word says. We can't go to God with a sense of entitlement and pride and exchange our good deeds for His love, for His acceptance, for His forgiveness, for righteousness, for right standing with Him. We can't do it because true righteousness is received through humility, and it produces humility. And that's what Paul was identifying in the church in Rome. Okay, you guys have great faith. I'm trying to help you understand that justification is by faith alone in the grace of Jesus Christ in the finished work of the cross. He said that's where justification comes from. That's where righteousness comes from. Not from your good works, not from your sense of entitlement, but it comes through faith in the finished work of the cross. And for us to receive that grace... We have to get to a place where we're humbled, where we go, okay, I realize that I can't do this on my own. That no matter how good I try to be or think that I am, that I cannot earn His righteousness. 
And the church in Rome was thinking the same thing, I think, that a lot of times you and I can slip off into. Is that when we begin to see good works, when we begin to see good things happening, we begin to attribute those things to ourselves. And we treat Jesus like, okay, we'll hold your hand and we'll figure out life together, Jesus. We're walking hand in hand with Jesus. I'm doing a little bit, he's doing a little bit. I'm doing a little bit, he's doing a little bit. No, folks, Jesus has done it all and we desperately need to depend on him completely. Amen. You see, it's total dependence upon Christ, not me trying to figure it out with a little bit of Jesus in the back when I need him. You know, like Jesus is that, you know, backseat driver. It's like things are going pretty good when I've got the steering wheel, and then all of a sudden, here comes a situation, and Jesus is going, stop, stop, stop. Oh, thanks, Jesus. Glad you were in the back seat. No, Jesus is driving this thing. Jesus is in control. He's the one we depend on. He's the one that we put our complete and total trust in. Amen? Not just a little bit, not just when we need him. He's not our emergency backup system. He is life, and apart from him, we have nothing. When we think that we've got this figured out in our own strength, folks, that is pride. And oftentimes, when we see good things happening in our lives, we can begin to rely on ourselves and look to ourselves. And Paul was saying, hey, listen, church in Rome, all those bad things I just listed off, all those things that I just went down that laundry list of all these dirty sins... You're actually putting yourself in the seat of pride and judgment and you're looking at others and thinking that you're better than them because of what you haven't done and what they have done and what you have done and what they haven't. And you're comparing yourself to other people and you're missing the whole point of justification by faith. You're thinking that your good works have equated you unto righteousness or right standing with God. And Paul is saying, if you are accusing people of doing things like this and you're looking at yourself as better he said, it's basically like you're doing the same thing. He said, you're putting yourself in the same boat. He said, you are just like the people you accuse. Oh, could you imagine? That would ruffle a few feathers, right? Oh, <laughs> I don't think so. He's like, no, no, no. The condition of your heart is the same. That's what Paul was saying. The condition of your heart is the same as those who do those things because you think that your right standing with God has somehow been earned. You think that your right standing with God has somehow been deserved and you're somehow entitled to something that these people are not. And so your heart condition is the same because it's relying on yourself and not on God. He says, just like those folks, because they're, they're, they're people who deny God. He said, the evidence of God has been clearly seen. The invisible attributes of God are clearly seen, like he said in Romans chapter 1. He said that they've seen God through creation, said they have no excuse. They've seen God through the law and His holiness and perfection, and they see His grace and mercy through the gospel. So men are without excuse because of God's clearly showing Himself to the world. These guys have no excuse, he said, and you're just like them because you are without excuse. He's saying, but you're choosing to rest and find comfort in your works, and you'll never find it. He said, you're looking for salvation and righteousness in of yourself, he said, and you're not going to find it. You see, Christians are not called to carry the banner of self-righteous judgment towards those who aren't socially acceptable. You see, I grew up in the South, in case you don't know. I grew up in the South, and there's a thing in the South that's uh, really prevalent, that people have this idea that if everything looks good, it is good. And so whenever you come over to someone's house in the south, everything's going to be perfect. Nothing's going to be out of place. Everything's going to be just right. They've paid off the kids. I'll give you each 20 bucks if you don't cause any problems. 
Everybody's going to be good. The meal is going to be probably uh, 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 something they have just slaved over all day. Why? Because the goal in the culture that I grew up in is to impress you and make you think everything's perfect and everything's going right and good. Nobody wants to see all that other stuff. Nobody wants to see the real stuff that goes on behind the scenes. No, I just want you to think everything is absolutely perfect. To where you leave, you'll be like, wow, man, our lives are terrible and they're great. And if I've made you feel that way, then I've accomplished my goal. And that's just a cultural thing. Well, I want to take you on a tour of my home as soon as you walk through the door. I want to show you all of my things and all of the stuff that I've accumulated. And I want to impress you. And I want you to think that I'm something and that I've got everything together. And it's the same thing that we often do in church. Same thing we do as believers. That we put forth our best foot in front of other people. And we want everyone to think that everything's going good. Everything's perfect. Everything's okay. We're the model Christian and we've got everything figured out. But no one really knows what's going on on the inside. And as long as I can fool you, then that must mean I'm okay. Well, the scary thing is that God sees your heart and He sees my heart. Even though we could fool other people. Even though we could make them think everything is good because we may not have sin or issues that are obvious to everyone. But here the church in Rome was mistaking the obvious sin, the one that everyone can see, the one that everybody knows about, that you can't run from, that you can't hide from, and they were judging people based off of those things. And Paul said, listen, if you're judging people based off of obvious, apparent sins that everyone knows about, What about the stuff in your heart that you haven't dealt with? You're putting yourself in the same boat as those folks when you do that. He said, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? Every one of us. It doesn't matter how good of a show we put on for other people. And Paul was saying, when you recognize that, it humbles you that we're all in the same category when it comes to sin in the eyes of God. The difference is, is where we put our hope for right standing with God. The Christian puts his hope or her hope in, the, in, in right standing with God in the finished work of the cross and says, I'm trusting and depending on Jesus for my salvation, not my good works, because I recognize that I am a sinner and I need grace. You see, you have to realize you need it before you can receive it. But before you realize you need it, you have to be humble. You can't receive grace with pride. It's impossible. The two just don't mix. They don't mingle. You cannot receive grace with pride. It has to be received in a spirit of humility, and you have to realize your need for it. You have to. That's the way that this thing works. And for us to try to make everyone think that something is a certain way, but yet we don't recognize our sin, then we don't really recognize our total dependence on Christ. That's why the law, the Bible says, was given to point us to our need for a Savior. Because when you look at the law, that's God's standard of holiness. And every one of us have broken His law. Every one of us have broken the holiness standard of God. And no matter how much we tried, we can never achieve the standard of holiness that God has set forth. This is who I am. I am holy. This is my law. You can't achieve my law. It's given to show you the weight of your sin. Because if you understand the weight of your sin, then when you understand the forgiveness and freedom that Christ brings, then you understand true forgiveness, true mercy, true grace, true righteousness in the eyes of God. And the natural response is going to be humility, not pride. It's not going to be, oh, look what I did. It's going to be, oh, look what Christ did for me. Amen, somebody? 
You see, James 4 and 6 says that God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. He resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Recipients of grace have been humbled by God's holiness, not our holiness. Humility in return gives grace. That's what it does. When humility receives grace, it gives grace. The Bible says that freely you have received, so freely give. Amen? He said, you freely receive grace. It's not something you earn. It's not something you deserve. Not something you figured out on your own. So because you freely receive this grace in humility, you give it. When you realize your need for the gospel and you're humbled by your recognition of your broken, hopeless condition, you can receive grace. And in return to others who would offend you, who would persecute you, who would be openly sinful, you give grace to those people. Grace doesn't bring judgment. Because those who have received grace recognize we all need Jesus. Now, I know sometimes we have friends or family members or coworkers who act up and do stupid things. Don't look at anybody. We just know that they do stupid things. And we say things like this, almost in jest, or maybe we're for real when we say it. We see somebody really blow it at work, or a family member that may be, you know, doing just really stupid things, and we, it, it, word of it catches our ears or it grieves our heart, and we say something to this effect. Man, they really need Jesus. They just need them some Jesus. Well, guess what, folks? We all need Jesus. And we never stop needing Jesus. And you need just as much Jesus as they need. We all need Him. We all need Christ. And we all need to depend on the finished work of the cross and in His grace. Because the Word says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's his great mercy. That's his great love that in the middle of our sin, in the middle of our uh, brokenness, in the middle of, of all of our pain, all of our shame, all the guilt that we've been carrying, Christ said, you know what? I am going to die for you and take on myself the punishment that you deserve, the wrath that you and I deserve that was actually bent towards us, the wrath of God. Christ took it upon himself for you and for me. And when I realize that, it humbles me. It's the kindness of the Lord, Paul said to the Romans in chapter 2, that leads us to repentance. Not getting to a place in life where we feel like we're better than other people because of the pitfalls or the sins that we have avoided. That's pride, and that's a poor understanding of grace. Holding sins over someone's head or holding wrongdoings over someone's head and forcing them to try to earn grace and forgiveness from you is wrong, and it's judgmental, and it's pride. Not forgiving an offense is pride because you're seeking your own brand of justification. Not releasing an offense. Now understand, when I'm talking about forgiving an offense, when I'm talking about forgiveness, it's different from reconciliation. Forgiveness and reconciliation are two different things. Listen to me real close here. Forgiveness deals with your heart and God. Reconciliation deals with the person who has caused you an offense and you. All right? Forgiveness does not mean you are obligated to reconcile because we have a misconstrued definition of grace oftentimes in Christianity. We think that grace means we let everybody just take advantage of us, run over us, and we just put ourselves right back in that situation again because I'm a Christian, run over me. I'm a Christian, just shoot me full of holes. I'm a Christian, just, you know, whatever you want to do to me because I'm a Christian and this is what Christians are supposed to do. And I love you, I guess. You see, when we have this goofy version of grace, we think grace is passive. But grace is not passive. Grace is very much active. 
If you listened to the message last week, and if you missed it, I would encourage you to go back. I talked about grace being redefined. How that grace, the same grace that welcomed the prodigal son back into the father's arms, was the same grace that let him go in the first place. That grace was also in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 5 where the Apostle Paul was dealing with the church in Corinth where there was an issue of sin in the church and Paul said you guys need to remove this guy from amongst you so that his flesh can be destroyed so his soul can be saved. You see he had to get to a point of brokenness and humility and guess what? That's grace. It's grace. I, I listened to a podcast the other day when I was working out and it was a Dave Ramsey podcast. You guys know who Dave Ramsey is? He's the financial guru from the Financial Peace University that we did a few months back and all that stuff. Great radio uh, talk show host, and he's a very outspoken Christian. He was doing a radio interview with Dan Cathy, who is the owner and president of Chick-fil-A restaurants, which, Lord, please bring Chick-fil-A to Sheboygan County. Amen. <laughs> Sorry. I just had to say a quick prayer there. Lord, lay it on someone's heart in this congregation. Reach out to Dan Cathy. All right. So they were talking about leadership, and Dan Cathy said, you know, in my organization, he said, I'm directly responsible for over 60,000 employees. He said, and you want to know what my name tag says? It says customer service. And he said, you want to know why my name tag says customer service? Because I realize my position as a leader is to serve those people who are working in the restaurants. And he said, I'm serving my employees. And he said, sometimes that means that I have to do things that are difficult because in my heart, I understand as a servant leader, the best interest for those individuals has to be at the forefront of my mind. Not what's best for my company, <clears throat> not what's best for me personally, what's best for the individual. So if that means that it hurts me, I have to do what's best for that person because I'm serving them. That's how I'm leading. I'm serving. We get this idea that servant leadership means that we're the person that's always doing the grunt work and that, and that everyone just runs over us because we're serving. No, that's not what servant leadership means when Dan Cathian and Dave Ramsey were talking. He said, what servant leadership actually means, he says, that I'm serving their best interests because I'm trying to help them to move forward in life. He said, and sometimes that means I have to let people go. But that's me serving them and that's me giving them grace. You ever thought about that before? You ever thought about firing someone as grace? Why? Because you're looking for their best interests that are at heart. He said he's had people come to him years later. And those people would come and say, thank you for letting me go because I was in the wrong and I needed to be let go at that point in my life because it helped me realize some things in my life. He said, you served me well. He said, I've had people come back and tell me things like that because he's a leader and he understands that his heart and his job is to be the customer service representative for his company to serve those who work in those Chick-fil-A restaurants. He said, it's hard. He said, because sometimes people misconstrue servantship, ser servanthood and they misconstrue grace this exact same way. Because when you serve someone and you have the best interest in mind, that's you giving them grace. What do we want to do? We demand answers. Why? 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 We want to know why this? Why that? We want to get mad about everything and begin to buy into all these false assumptions and false accusations and all these things. And we don't even know what's going on and we don't even understand the heart of what's going on behind the deal. Just like Paul said, you guys need to get rid of this guy. You need to get him out from amongst your midst. He said, this is actually for the saving of his soul. Just like in Romans chapter 1 where Paul explains that God gave these people who were so wrapped up in their sin, he gave them over to their evil lust and their passions. Why? Because God's heart is to let these people go to get to a place of brokenness to where they realize they need Christ. 
God's not causing them to get to that place. God's not saying, I wish these bad things upon you. He wants us to come to know Him, but it's His kindness and it's His grace that will still say, you know what? If you want to go that way, go that way, but I'm still here. I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'm here. The door's always open. Reach out to me in your time of need. Reach out to me in your time of trouble. You see, you just have to get to a place in your heart where you've been humbled, where you realize, wow, I need Christ. I really need Him. And when you realize that need, what does He do? He pours out grace, just like the prodigal son's father did. And that's exactly how Paul was trying to explain to these folks that, listen, forgiveness is something that is between you and God. It's something that you have to make sure your heart is right with God. But when it comes to reconciliation, that's between you and another person. That's between the fact that they have done something wrong to you, they have offended you, whatever the case may be. And just because you've forgiven them doesn't mean instant reconciliation. You have to set for yourself in your life healthy boundaries for people who would want to hurt, who people would want to abuse you, people who would want to take advantage of you and things like that. God does not want you to continually put yourself in a situation where you're abused, hurt, taken advantage of. Amen, somebody. That doesn't mean that you're walking in unforgiveness, though, because what is forgiveness? Forgiveness towards the person is between you and God. Now, reconciliation is a complete different thing. So if you're navigating reconciliation, that person has to be at a place where they also are willing to talk and willing to be humbled and willing to not only be a recipient of grace, but give grace. You know sometimes that if you just forgive someone and you instantly um, think that that means reconciliation, you could actually be doing that person a great disservice because your relationship is now skewed because there's this big white elephant in the room that nobody wants to talk about and you feel awkward and they feel justified and they feel right in what they did because you're just this passive Christian that lets everything go and you're not wanting to talk about anything difficult. And you think that's grace, and you're wrong. That's not grace. Guess what? God deals with us about issues, amen? Is that not grace? Is that not love? Of course it's grace. Of course it's love. So why would we think that God would want us to deal with our issues here on earth any differently? Just because someone offends you, hurts you, does something wrong, doesn't mean you have to go and be their best friend, but it does mean you have to forgive them doesn't mean you have to go and restore a relationship because that will take a little bit more because that's between you and that individual. The forgiveness piece of it is between you and God. Does that make sense? That's grace. That's grace. Grace is actually giving people what they need, not what they deserve. What they need, not what they deserve. Because what does the Bible say? That we deserve the wages of sin is death. But grace stepped in and gave us life, eternal. Why? Why did he do it? Did he just do it? No, it it takes us trusting in him. It takes us putting our faith and our hope and our dependence on him. It takes us being humbled and realizing and recognizing our need for him. And it's the same thing when you look at restoring natural relationships. So let's keep on going. Romans chapter 2 and verse 5 But because you're stubborn and you refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself, for a day of anger is coming, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will judge everyone according to what they have done, and He will give eternal life to those who keep doing good, seeking after the glory and honor and immortality that God offers. But He will pour out His anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth, instead instead live lives of wickedness. 
There will be trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps on doing what is evil, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. But there will be glory and honor and peace from God for all who do good for the Jew and for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. You see, he's talking about good works here. He said, those who have received this message of grace, those who understand justification by faith alone in the finished work of the cross, he said, good works are going to be a response because the natural response to humbly receiving grace is good works. Because guess what good works do? It's a life, living a life full of good works is a life that glorifies God. It's a natural response to humbly receiving grace which is the only way you can receive grace, by the way. Good works are a natural response to humbly receiving His good grace. We naturally want to do good things, just like you naturally are thankful for someone who does something kind for you that you didn't deserve, that you didn't earn. Someone that goes out of their way to um, pay a bill for you that was due. Someone that goes out of their way to bless you either physically or financially or that they're just there for you during a time of crisis. You didn't earn that. You didn't deserve that. No, they gave it to you because of their love for you, because of their concern for you. And God gives His grace to us because of His great love for us. And what is the natural response of your heart when someone does that? You want to do something kind for those people, don't you? I mean, those that bless you, those that have done something. What can I do? I, I, how can I be a blessing to you? You were there for me all those years. You've, you, you, you've done so much in my life. And it's not something that you're trying to pay them back. It's not that you're trying to all of a sudden, you know, get to the place in life where now you're even. <laughs> no, it's that you just are so blown away by that love. You're just so blown away by that kind of mercy. You're so blown away by that kind of generosity that it stirs up something in your heart that just wants to go and serve and give and do. Have you ever been a part of some type of outreach or, or worked any type of mission before where you see like a mission of mercy? Maybe when there's a great disaster, a tornado or a flood or, 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 and all of a sudden people just rally around and they, they're just helping one another and they're blessing these other people. What does that stir up in those people? They want to go and do some of the same things. Why? Because something in our heart responds to receiving that. And it's because we're wired to worship our Creator because our good works glorify God when, when they're a response of grace. Not when we're trying to use our good works in an effort to tip the scales of justice our way. Sometimes Christians do this. They look at Christianity as karma and they think, I've done a lot of bad and I'll admit that. Hey, I've blown it. I've done a lot of bad things. And they think, I'll offset those bad things by doing good things. And then when I go to heaven and I stand before God, he's going to go, oh, you did more good things than you did bad things. That's not going to work. Because the scales of justice are so tipped in the, in, with the weight of our sin that there's nothing we could do to try to outweigh. Nothing we could do. Because Paul lists all of the things he said that is vile and wicked in the hearts of men. And then he said, and if you're thinking you can do this, you're thinking you can outweigh the, the, the weight of your sin. He said, you can't do it. It's not going to work. He said, actually, if you think that you're better because you're outweighing the bad with good, then you're no better off than these folks that he talked about in chapter 1, 18 through 32. He said, you're missing the point. We try to go the opposite way. We try to good work ourselves into God's love, into God's favor, into God's grace, into God's mercy, into forgiveness. 
We feel like we have to you know, pay a price for our sin in order to earn ourselves righteousness in the eyes of God. And it doesn't work, folks. That's not grace. That will produce a sense of entitlement, a sense of earning. And you can't earn grace. You can't be entitled to grace. This is not something that you deserve or I deserve because then it wouldn't be grace. Because grace is something you didn't earn, something you didn't deserve. Amen? And here he says that good works are a life that glorifies God. And he puts the self-righteous crowd right back with the other crowd that he accuses them for judging uh, earlier. And he says, listen, you are this crowd when you try to justify yourself with good deeds. You're actually storing up wrath, he said, of God's anger against yourself because you haven't chosen the heart position of self-righteous just... uh, you, You have chosen the heart position of self-righteous justification instead of the heart position of humility that understands grace. And he calls this evil. He said there are workers of evil in verse 9 because a heart that has received grace is going to produce good works that glorify God. And God does not show favoritism. So that doesn't mean... So what that means is that God doesn't allow your good works to be offset in the sense of... He goes, oh... You've done more good deeds than him, so I like you better than that person. But oftentimes, that's how we want to look at God. And folks, that's not how it works. When we do, we're missing the point of his grace. Let's keep on reading here in verse 11. He said, For God does not show favoritism, for when the Gentiles sin, they will be destroyed, even though they never had God's written law. And the Jews who do have God's law, well, they're going to be judged by that law when they fail to obey it. For merely listening to the law doesn't make us right with God. It's obeying the law that makes us right in His sight. Even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know the law when they instinctively obey it even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written on their hearts. For even their own conscience and thoughts demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts. And then they know that they are doing right. And this is the message I proclaim, that the day is coming when God, through Christ Jesus, will judge everyone's secret life. You who call yourself Jews are relying on God's law, and you boast about your special relationship with Him. You know what He wants, you know what is right, because you've been taught His law. You're convinced that you are a guide for the blind and a light for people who are lost in the darkness. You think you can instruct the ignorant and teach children the ways of God, for you are certain that God's law gives you complete knowledge and truth. Well then, if you teach others, then why don't you teach yourself? You tell others not to steal, but do you steal? You say it is wrong to commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? You condemn idolatry, but do you use items stolen from pagan temples? You're so proud of knowing the law, but you dishonor God by breaking it. No wonder the scriptures say the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you. The Jewish ceremony of circumcision circumcision has value only if you obey God's law. But if you don't obey God's law, you're no better off than an uncircumcised Gentile. And if the Gentiles obey God's law, won't God declare them to be his own people? In fact, uncircumcised Gentiles who keep God's law will condemn you Jews who are circumcised and, com- and possess God's law, but you don't obey it. For you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by God's Spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. I think the appropriate response to this scripture reading would be, Amen. 
Because here he is outlining all of this. And he's saying, listen, good works don't save. Good works are not going to save. He said, listen, you, you Jews, you know the law. God gave you the law, but yet you still break it. Yea, for you, you have the law. You still break it. The Gentiles, they don't even have the law. And they even know their consciences is still pricked and driven sometimes to not do these things that you have the law for. But they still break it too. So what are we going to do? You say you Jews, you're, you're circumcised, so you're God's special people. And he says, listen, what do you think would happen if there was a Gentile who obeyed the law to the perfect letter? But he wasn't circumcised. But you're a Jew who has been circumcised. And he said, you break the law. He said, what are you, what's God going to do with that? Don't you think the, Jew, uh, the Gentile would look at the Jew and go, man, I've got this thing figured out. You're blowing it, buddy. You're supposed to be the one that has this figured out because you are the one who has the law. He said, so it's not about circumcision of the flesh. He said, it's about circumcision of the heart. And that kind of a heart change comes from God's Spirit living on the inside of you. And God's Spirit lives and dwells on the inside of you when you put your faith and your hope in the finished work of the cross and that He has paid the penalty for your sin and that He has taken all of that junk that you've been carrying around as a weight and He has taken that upon Himself. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon Him. And by His stripes we are healed. Amen? He carried all of that for you and for me. And when I realize that, what does it do? It humbles me. And He said, the natural response of a changed heart is going to seek praise from God, not people. Right? And so that way, pastors can't get up in pulpits and wag their finger at people and say, you need to put God first. And I go, okay, what does that mean? Put God first. Okay, does that mean when I wake up in the morning that I set my alarm clock 30 minutes early, except God, it's going to be 15 because I've got a lot to do tonight. I'll do 30 tomorrow, though, and I wake up a little bit early and I spend a little bit of devotional time with God. Does that mean putting God first? No, that, that, that's not. That's putting God first. Is it, okay, well, well, let me figure out how I can work my way into putting God first. How can I figure this thing out? As if we look at it as it's something we're supposed to figure out. Well, I, I, I need to spend an hour in prayer and an hour in Bible reading every day, and I need to have Christian music blasting all the time. I need to turn on Christian television and watch nothing except Christian television. Nothing's on in my house except Jesus. I'm going to wear nothing but Christian t-shirts. And I'm going to speak nothing except King James English, because that's how Jesus talked. And we think that if we do that, that we're putting God first, that that's putting God first. So you see, we even look at Matthew 6 and 33, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. We even look at that as a way that we can work into God's good grace. Am I doing it yet? God, am I seeking your kingdom first? Am I doing it yet? And God is saying, no, you're missing the point. He said, a changed heart is going to produce good works that are going to glorify God because it's going to be a natural response, not something you're trying to produce in order to get something. It's you already understand what you've gotten and good works flow out of it. Amen, somebody. Good works flow out of a heart 
that has been changed by the Spirit of the living God dwelling on the inside of them. That's why Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. It's your reasonable act of service. You know, we could preach that and say, you need to, you need to be a living sacrifice. I don't even know what that means. It sounds kind of creepy. A living sacrifice. I want you to be a living sacrifice. I'm not even sure how to do that. So we as Christians with our works mentality, with our earning and entitlement mentality, try to figure out how to do living sacrifice. Same thing with Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33. We try to figure out how to do, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Instead of it being a natural dependence and reliance from the humility of our hearts that is going to naturally produce good works. Not the other way around. What, what did Paul say in Romans 12? He said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God. It's the mercy of God that draws us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Not a checklist of things that we go, okay, I'm doing living sacrifice. I'm good at it. It's the mercy of God that causes me to want to give my time, my treasure, my life, and commit it to the service of Jesus. Because I want to give my heart and my life to Him, and I want to give Him works that are going to bring glory to Him because I realize how great of a sacrifice He made for me. It's humility that changes everything. Because what did this say? A person with a changed heart seeks praise from who? God, not people. We all know that. We all know, don't seek praise from men, seek praise from God. Okay, thank you for telling me that again, I know that. But I can't do that until my heart is God's. I can't do that until I receive that weight of this, this, this great mercy and forgiveness and grace. And my natural response is those things. See, good works don't save. Matthew chapter 18. I'm going to read here before we go this morning. Matthew 18 and verse 21. Peter comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? Sounds good to me. Seven? It's fair. Jesus says, not seven times. He said, 70 times seven. So Peter's going, what? Okay. He's trying to figure that out. And as Peter's trying to do the math in his head, Jesus says, therefore the kingdom of heaven is compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with his servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife and his children and everything he owned in order to pay off the debt. But the man fell down before the master and he begged him. He said, please be patient with me and I'm going to pay everything. Then his master was filled with pity for him and released him and forgave him from his debt. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars and he grabbed him by the throat and he demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged him, Just give me a little bit more time. Be patient with me and I'll pay all, he pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. And they went to the king and they told him everything that had happened. 
Then the king called in the man he had forgiven, and he said, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. According to our standards today, this man would have owed about $2,250,000,000. That's a lot of cheddar. $2,250,000,000. But he was forgiven. He didn't do anything to deserve that, did he? By all right, by all means, he should have had to pay that debt because he borrowed the money. That's how it works. You borrow the money, you pay what you borrow. With interest, as we all know. He should have paid the debt, but he couldn't. And he was about to lose everything. He was about to lose his freedom. He was about to lose his family. He was about to lose everything dear and precious to him. But he pleaded with the master, and the master had pity on him. And he said, I'm going to forgive you everything. Could you imagine the weight that this man was carrying? Imagine the weight that you and I even carry when we have debt of our own. Think about the financial debt maybe that we carry on our own. Think about the weight of that, especially when you can't pay those bills. And you do, or you lose your job. How am I going to pay this? You feel this weight on you. It's this huge burden. And if someone comes along and says, I'm going to pay everything, what type of a release would you feel? What type of a freedom would you feel? What type of a gratitude would you feel? What type of, a, of, of, of just being in awe would you feel? And then somebody owes you a couple hundred bucks and you go and you grab them by the neck and choke them and say, give me what's mine. I'm going to throw you in prison until I get what's mine. That shows us that there's a heart that forgot the weight of what they've been forgiven for. Because what should have been the good work? What should have been the natural response to being forgiven when someone comes to you with something? It should have been extending that same grace. Amen? Because grace that has been received in humility gives grace. Because God gives grace to the humble. Freely you've received, so freely you give. But this man didn't. And it aroused the wrath of God against him yet again. And that's what Paul was talking about to the church in Rome. Paul was saying, listen, you guys are, you guys are, 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 are casting judgment over these people. He said, and you forget the weight of what you've been forgiven of. You forget the message of the cross. You're forgetting the weight of grace. You see, if we truly understand the weight, then grace is going to flow. Good works are going to flow. You see... When Christ comes and releases us from that weight, he said, take my yoke upon you for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The natural response is good works with worship, with thankfulness, not with this pious judgment towards others that would feel better than someone else, that we would feel that we're in a different category of goodness than other people because we would quickly forget our debt that he paid. A person with a changed heart loves God and out of a response for the goodness of that mercy, that's where good works are going to flow. Good works are going to flow out of a heart of humility that gives glory to God and you and I were created to bring glory to God. And that's going to happen when we best understand His grace and His mercy. And I hope that as we've gone through the second chapter of Romans, that has helped you to understand the grace of our Lord and understand the source of good works and the purpose of good works.
to understand that as we move forward as believers to not get prideful and pious and caught up in this junk thinking that we're better than other people because of what we know or because of what we experienced or because of what we've done or what we haven't done but that we walk humbly never forgetting the great weight of debt that Christ paid and that it causes worship in our heart the bigger our capacity to receive grace the the, the bigger the response of worship is going to be you know I think a lot of times people look at everything and try to figure out how do we do this How do we do living sacrifice? How do we do seek first the kingdom of God? How do we do good works? How do we do worship? You know, I'm I'm, I'm right here with my worship right now. I'm hoping to get here one day because I know that Jesus really likes it when I'm here. Or here, that's really intense. When my worship's right here. Jesus! But right now, I'm right here. I might even be right here, just a little pinky wave. And I think that it's more spiritual for me to be here. And so I think that this is spiritual, and I think this is what God wants, and this is what God likes. And so I'm trying to work my way to get here, and he's like, no, 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 no. That's not what I'm after. I'm after this. So I don't care if your pinky wave, and I don't care if your arms are crossed. I don't care if your arms are lifted straight in the air. I don't care if you're belting as loudly as you can. It doesn't matter because worship is a response. You understand that? Worship is a response. It's like you get overwhelmed with His goodness. And, and if you lift your hands, if, if, if you take a moment to bow down, if you take a moment just to sit and just to just let your mind be blown by the grace and the goodness of God, if it makes you want to serve, if it makes you want to give, if it, if it makes you want to do good things towards others, to forgive others, to give grace to other people, to be there for other people when you have nothing to gain from it, that is a response to grace. And the bigger that capacity increases, the more those works begin to flow out of you and me naturally. And when those works flow out because of a response to grace, it gives glory to God and not to you and not to me. That's the gospel. That's our need for Jesus. That's how greatly we need to remember we always need Him. Would you bow your head this morning? Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit WOGCC dot com.